If I had to characterize the past year in this city, it would be a major disconnect between what urban thinkers, activists, and harm reduction workers were calling for during the ongoing pandemic and the response from the city of Toronto. I'll admit, I exist in a kind of specific bubble, one I actively populate with people whose opinions and experiences I respect and rely upon. But I thought at least some of the people in charge, with the resources and pull to make big swings in the name of equitable public space and basic human decency, were part of that bubble. I don't take that for granted anymore. We all agreed things like access to parks was more important than ever before. But somehow, we got locked bathrooms and busted water fountains. We all agreed COVID raised the housing crisis to a full-blown catastrophe. But we got a police crackdown on people experiencing homelessness, and people who tried to find grassroots solutions were discouraged, threatened, or sued. Problem-solving at the city level seemed to just add to the existing damage. It's like we spent the last year playing a grim game of broken telephone. I look back on it with frustration and a fair bit of grief. And I'm just a spectator. I can't imagine how it feels for my whole life to be directly at the whims of such an absurd and intractable city. But it's a new year, and a big one politically. We have a provincial election this summer, and a municipal one in the fall. If we manage to crawl out of this pandemic, we'll be faced with the problem of undoing the damage it's caused. Not to mention the previous decades of austerity budgeting and regressive policy. The stakes are high. But this is a year to hold power accountable and elevate people and voices who are ready to bring about real, fearless, compassionate change. That's my hope, at least. Give me a little New Year's revolution. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting in front of an oscillating space heater, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, author, journalist, and spacing contributing editor Perry King talks about the future of city-owned golf courses in Toronto. And Neil Brochu tells us about a queer-friendly Toronto curling league, which you can read about in the new spacing book, Souvenirs of Toronto Sports. But first, Sanctuary Toronto outreach worker Lorraine Lamb returns to tell us what happened to the people forcibly evicted from Toronto parks last summer, and why she and her colleagues warn the shelter system has collapsed. Stand by. Lorraine, when when we talked last summer, we were talking about the encampment evictions that were happening. And we already know a little bit of the aftermath. We know that uh, many of those people had nowhere else to go. That made headlines for a bit. But I'd like to know, like, as winter came and and then with the Omicron arrival, what are are you seeing? What, What happened to those people who were living in the encampments and where are they now? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Summer feels like it was a really long time ago. But yeah, I mean, I think as you were just saying, a lot of people who were in the encampments after the first several evictions from Lamport and from Bellwoods, honestly, people just moved to different parts. So a number of people from Bellwoods ended up going 
actually over to Lamport. A number of people after Lamport went to Dufferin Grove, went to Randy Padmore, and a lot of people also went to just more isolated areas. So the evictions really just like destroyed communities of people who were living together and supporting each other. Since the summer of evictions, people are still pretty scattered. A number of people who were at Dufferin Grove now have their own apartments, mm-hmm. which is great. There's a number of people who are still outside in different encampments. Some have moved into the valley, perhaps. A lot of other people are honestly just doing what they have done all these years in terms of figuring out how to survive. So some of them might be couch surfing. A lot of them are still camping. A number of people did go into some of the shelter hotels that were offered, but a number of people have also been kicked out of those spaces, so they're still outside. I know a few people who ride transit all winter to stay warm. So there's definitely a whole bunch of different things that people are doing right now to just stay warm and survive this season. And Omicron has obviously been devastating. I'm wondering how that affected the shelter system. For a number of us, we feel like the city did not plan appropriately. It's not like winter. Winter is not a surprise. We know that winter happens every year here. And we knew sort of just from trends in other cities that we knew that Omicron was going to be a reality here. In October, before the city put out their winter plan, the Shelter Housing Justice Network actually put out their own suggestions for a winter plan in anticipation of the city's because they just knew that the city's plan was going to be inadequate. And sure enough, the city released their plan and it was definitely not adequate. For instance, there were only 60 recovery beds that were available at the time, Mm -hmm. which is really concerning considering the number of people who are staying in the shelter system and have no other options or places to go. So with Omicron and the shelter system, there are outbreaks happening every day. The outbreaks are rising. People who are asymptomatic are having to situate in situ, like inside the actual congregate space. And then for a number of people who are symptomatic and maybe they're not indoors anywhere, they're put on a waiting list to try to, you know, wait for a bed to become available at one of the recovery sites. So it's definitely really problematic. The city talks a lot about, you know, vaccinations, but the fact is we can't vaccinate our way out of it, right? Like I think amongst the community who is living in the shelter system, vaccination rates have sort of hit the peak of what they will be. Mm-hmm. And we can't just rely on vaccinations to be the solution for, for any of this. As well, we, we know that even vaccinated people can still catch and transmit the, the disease, uh, that they might fare better health-wise, but it, it, it's not a perfect solution. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reality too is so many people who are in the shelter system have other sort of compounding health realities right now. And so we know that like, the long-term effects of COVID can be devastating for a lot of people who already have existing health conditions and for people who don't. So um, it really does make a community that's quite vulnerable, even more vulnerable. Right. Speaking to that, before COVID happened, uh, before we we heard the the name, the shelter system was always overtaxed during the winter season mm-hmm. in previous years. Space has been a problem. People have been turned away. There's been calls to open the armories and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But currently, you and people in your network are talking about the collapse of the shelter system. And I was hoping you could tell me a bit about what that means, what the collapse looks like, and uh, what, what are you seeing on the ground? One of the things that the city often relied on during the winter season was things like out of the cold that were volunteer run. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are sort of ways that 
people who were homeless would have options. And the city didn't really like, they kind of just relied on that for many, many years. The reality with COVID is that like those spaces couldn't open because they're congregate settings. So it's not a new problem, but they did have this issue that they needed to to plan for. I would say that the shelters, the shelter system, according to their shelter standards, there's two categories of shelters. They're either transitional or they're emergency shelters. So right from the get-go, shelters are not supposed to be a long-term solution, right? They're supposed to just be a temporary thing for people if they fell on hard times that they could just have a place to land briefly and transition into stability. But what we're seeing, though, is that there are people who have been living in shelters for years and years. Mm -hmm. So the system that existed prior to COVID, I would say, was a bit of a house of cards. Like It was really, really not set up well. It was very under-resourced, I would say. And then now we have COVID, where... I feel like COVID was like the big gust of wind that like knocks the house of cards over because what we're seeing is, I mean, there's staffing issues. So, you know, I know that a lot of spaces are struggling to have people work shifts. And I think that's the thing that we're seeing across the city in, in many different sectors. But so we're hearing stories of different shelters relying on temp agencies to fill positions that should be staffed by qualified workers. And that's not happening. And so that's really dangerous. Um, for both staff and residents alike, right? That that just is it's a really vulnerable situation for a lot of people. We also are just in a reality where there's no spaces for anywhere to go. So I know like there's stories upon stories of how people are calling central intake to try to access a bed somewhere for somebody, and people are put on hold for a really long time, which isn't new either. Um, only to be told that there are no options available because there really aren't any. I know the city talks a lot about, you know, they've opened a bunch of new warming spaces, but the reality is you have to access those through central intake and even those spots are full. So even though the city is saying that they're open new spots and there were a couple of new warming centers that were made available last week, still not enough for the need that there is. We're also seeing that there's a, the reality of a capacity. So traditionally, you could go to 129 Peter Street, which is like the shelter housing referral center. Traditionally, you could walk in there and and just kind of wait there Mm -hmm. until something opened up. But right now, there is a capacity reality because of COVID. And so once they reach eight people, they can't take in anyone else. So eight people is is not a lot. And so spaces are full and people literally have nowhere to go. And so there's a lot more people that I'm seeing who are, again, riding transit just to stay warm overnight, especially like on a night like like this, for instance. I just tried to call central intake for somebody. And once again, there was nothing available and told me to try again in an hour. Right. Throughout the pandemic, we have heard a lot of announcements of City Hall trying a lot of different things in the name of addressing this crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, we've heard they're they're trying to find more space. There's, uh, you know, the modular housing, there's hotel rooms. How is that stacked up? And and is, is that alleviating the crisis at all? I would say the crisis is definitely worsening. Like I think we're seeing still a lot of people lose jobs, The people are still getting evicted. So even just by, from, from city data alone, we are seeing a net increase of people that are becoming homeless every month. So I think what the city is doing right now is far from enough actually. And I, and I think there's a little bit of lack of urgency in the response. The hotel shelters were something that a lot of us pushed for at the start of the pandemic, but it's clear that it's not enough. There's also huge questions about what happens when the leases run out. 
Um, will the city renew them? And if not, what are they going to do with all the people who are staying there right now? The hotel shelters do work for a number of people. There are people that I know personally who have been on the streets for years and are currently in one of the hotel shelters and are doing really, really well and have expressed how COVID was a bit of a silver lining because for once they got to experience a little bit of what it's like to have stability and, and a warm place to sleep every night. So they are working for a number of people, but I would say that it's far from enough. You know, the reality is like, I think the recent numbers that I had seen was like, it's about $6,000 for one person in the hotel shelter space. And so if you multiply that by all of the people who are in these hotel shelters, that money could very well just go towards building long-term affordable housing, like actual real long-term solutions. I just feel like the city keeps putting band-aids over things that are not just a paper cut, right? Like the housing crisis is a long time crisis that we've been in even before the pandemic. And then there's the reality of the opioid overdose crisis as well. And I think a lot of people are entering these spaces and are dying from overdoses. And the city only recently released a plan to sort of address this in the last few months. So I feel like the city is slow to respond. And in the meantime, a lot of people are dying preventable deaths. I think the recent number released is that there was 132 shelter deaths um, last year. And when the numbers are going to be like fully released, we know that number will be higher than that. Mm-hmm. And the average life expectancy for a person who's homeless is less than 50 years old. So like these are really, really, like, these are policy failures. And I think the result of that is that people are dying way earlier from preventable things. And that's not okay. Talking about priorities, uh, I mean, it's budget season. The It's already kicked off and they'll, they'll be debating it into next month. So is there something that you hope to see in this new budget session? Are there any items that you hope will get funded or be passed? Yeah, I mean, I would hope for much more funding for the drop-in sector, for instance. A lot of people rely on drop-ins for access to meals and healthcare and support. Um, I would hope for an actual plan towards more housing. And that's definitely like a provincial thing as well. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of conversation about the police budget. To me, it's bananas that like, yeah, <laughs> that we would even entertain the idea of increasing the budget for the police worth by that much money when it's clear that like they haven't really, more policing has not actually resolved any of the root realities that we're seeing. More policing is not reducing homelessness. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are calling the police to respond to people in mental health distresses, but like the police show up and they too have no options for people. They show up to the distress call and what they're doing is they're bringing people, dropping them off outside at a warming center because they have not, they have nowhere to take them. So I, I am a, <laughs> I am a firm believer that we shouldn't be funding the police the way that we, that we are and the money that, that we're spending could be spent on actual community resources and supports that address long-term solutions. Okay, well, uh, Lorraine, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for doing this. Now, the City of Toronto and Toronto and Region Conservation Authority currently own five golf courses in the city. The future of these courses will be decided at the next City Council meeting. Some people would like to see them scrapped. They cut off trails and ravines, they're not very environmentally friendly, and they take up a lot of potential public space. Others say they're a great place to get active and enjoy the outdoors, and there's been a spike of users throughout the pandemic. What do we do with the city's greens? We asked Spacing Contributing Editor Perry King 
author of the book Rebound, Sports, Community, and the Inclusive City. Perry, there's an interesting item that has come in front of committee at City Hall and, and will go to City Council at large pretty soon. And it is about the future of five city-owned golf courses. And it's actually generated quite a lot of debate. In, in urbanist communities, what to do about golf courses? Should we even have golf courses? What purpose does that particular sport serve uh, Toronto communities? It, it's been a big debate for as long as I've been kind of covering this urbanist stuff, you've had a chance to look over what, what's been proposed. Uh, I wanted to get your initial thoughts of like, of, of what's going to come before city council. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, I don't know. There's a lot to think about with, with the item because it, it, it addresses a bunch of th- different things that, that the city wants to do with respect to the relationships that it has developed over time. I know that these, these golf courses are, inherited over generations so they they have some kind of um you know share space in in terms of the identity of what the city wants to provide in terms of public services in terms of you know active uh, participation for for people that live in the city they are not private courses which is well maybe not surprising because i i wondered uh, you know to what capacity the city of toronto could you know have a private club with a 7200 yard golf course in within its city limits that that isn't available to the public but it was good to know that a lot of these um, assets are, are are publicly owned. It's still important to the city of Toronto to provide these services, and it, it, I guess it would be similar to trying to deploy a plan to you know look after hockey rinks or other recreation facilities. It's the same kind of mindset. It's about you know regardless of the the service being provided or the sport that's that's being housed that that it accommodates for a public interest to some extent. But to to the city of Toronto's credit, I mean. If we're talking about like high performance facilities that that attract professional tournaments and and other kinds of programming, I think, um, you know, some of them can't provide those professional um, accommodations, but some of them can, and and so being able to to you know, walk the line to provide these services, but at the same time, you know, attract you know major major tournaments or or you know stuff that that is up for big competitions like the Ontario games or like the Commonwealth games to some extent, you know, being able to have a balance of, of assets in the portfolio is, is, is a good thing. And especially with this golf item, you know, it, it crystallizes it mostly because we haven't really addressed it in any kind of organized way. And I think uh, the city is, is, is primed to, to address it as, as best they can. I, I wondered a lot specifically, for example, about the D'Antonio golf course and whether taking away nine holes takes away from the experience. Or takes away from the professional competitive experience. I'm, I'm sure it would add to, you know, being a public asset in terms of accessibility. I think those things are very important. Golf usage has gone up. I know that, and I, I haven't seen the, the pure numbers, but you know, close to 200,000 people a year are, are going to to golf courses in the city, and I think that's that's something that we should take advantage of. There is a growing interest, and that needs to be accommodated somehow. Yeah, um, and the the pandemic also was a was a huge help because some of these city owned golf courses, the numbers were not looking good. They were losing money. They weren't attracting people, and then the pandemic hit. Suddenly, uh, a sport that involves being outdoors in, in like a, a nice socially distanced setting, uh, small groups of people playing at a time, seems like a pretty attractive way to spend uh, an afternoon. Yeah, and I feel like the the pandemic didn't didn't stir this for 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 the city, although the city had so many priorities to consider. 
But I think for, for private owners or private operators, I think this is a wake up call in terms of, you know, what value they can actually add to the, the ultimate purpose for having these kinds of facilities within city, city, you know, city limits and, you know, as, as a kind of a public private kind of split or, or, or usage that, you know, there's still a responsibility, a public responsibility to provide a quality, physical education experience for for people that use these facilities. And if your numbers are going down, it's a wake-up call as to who you're actually addressing and who you would like to access the, uh, those facilities. I find golf courses are, I mean, they have a long history of exclusivity and they have a long history of taking away public assets and, and you know providing low-tax situations for, for people who can afford it. I mean, those things don't ap- apply in the city of Toronto and we're lucky to do so. And now that the pandemic hit, I think it woke people up to a reality about, you know, what, what they can actually serve to, to a number of people. You know, it's a continuing question. It's not even just a golf course question. You know, if we're rethinking what the Rogers Center is going to look like, or when we're con- uh, considering expanding multi-use facilities across the, across the city, building more community centers, building more assets like libraries, you know, when it comes to providing uh, services that add to quality of life, I think there should be a consideration for for who lives in that neighborhood. At the same time, providing a quality experience. Let's speak to the perceived elitism of of the sport of golf, because uh, people are speaking to this issue. People are pro these city owned golf courses. Are saying that th- these aren't exclusive country clubs. These are friendly neighborhood local uh, places to play with uh, low fees. I mean, the city tries to keep them intentionally low so that there isn't a huge barrier. And you you think a lot about and and write about the the value of sport to to various communities, and uh, in your in your book Rebound, you talk about you know there, there's a perceived idea that um, certain people are just not interested in hockey. Where you document, no, everyone can get into hockey. It's just there are a lot of barriers to that. So is is there something inherently elite about golf, or is it just that, that there's a way to engage people? Uh, all kinds of people in the sport if if you just do it correctly. Oh, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the example I always think about is the, the public tennis courts in Los Angeles that accommodated for Venus and Serena Williams. Without those kinds of facilities, mm-hmm. you don't have the opportunity to have, you know, an expanded number of people access and, and find successes in some cases. I think uh, the elitism is just kind of a decades old, consideration about, you know, taxation and, um, you know, when you have these private facilities, you know, who gets control over what they look like. Uh, a lot of uh, private courses do a lot of uh, major environmental upheaval. Um, they can wipe out local species. There's there's a lot of spillover effects when, when um, golf courses have been treated a certain way. But to the city's credit, they've been able to try to keep these these assets in-house. Because they know that that there's going to be inherent uh, benefits to to having these facilities, and they have you know over time have been good revenue uh, generators. They, I guess, in terms of like a business um, relationship, you know, in terms of finding ways to to raise funds for the city for uh, for other uses, I think it makes some sense to to have them in the portfolio. Could we develop a, a golf course kind of a, you know, layout that that attracts that? Similar level of of um, you know competitive nature, or maybe like a quality eighteen course, seven thousand yard facility that that can accommodate the Canadian Open, for example. Um, maybe not. Yeah. And I think you know a part of this is being realistic about you know what details we can we can manage and what we can actually attract with those assets. Being being realistic about 
what they can do for, you know, for, for public interest is something to be considered very highly. I think a lot, a lot about this. Like if, you know, the city of Toronto, which I think they're going to be following up with, you know, providing more affordable options for uh, BIPOC communities, for different, you know, equity deserving groups. I, I, you know, if, if we're in a state where we just know that the public courses that we have, at best, they can uh, accommodate a par three tournament. Right. Which is, you know, not quite of the same power as a PGA course. If we can find ways to, to be who we are and then provide solutions based on the needs in the community, I think, I think those things uh, can, can really benefit. They can, they can really give us something a little different. You know, even, even taking away nine holes at D'Antonio is, it's an interesting experiment. It, it would deserve at the most at this moment, some kind of pilot project to, to accommodate for different interests. I know that the item uh, from the city was considering uh, building more rinks and trails and, and uh, close close location to these courses. So I, th- I think that's just as important as it is, you know, generally using the course. But when we realize that they're in the ravine system and we got to make sure that we're following environmental principles and, you know, accommodating those interests by, while also making sure that the environment and make sure that uh, our ravines are protected, that local species are protected. So th- there's a lot going on. It's a, it's a huge equation. It's a little more complicated or maybe a little more nuanced than, than some people would take away immediately. Yeah. I, I mean, th- this motion, it, it tries to do all of these things at once. I mean, it, it wants to improve the connectivity of the, the ravines and the, the trail systems. It wants to find alternative uses or off hours uses or off season uses. It, it wants to naturalize the ravines and find more green practices because as we know, the old school way of, of maintaining greens is, is pretty environmentally detrimental with the amount of water it uses uh, and the pesticides and it takes a lot of unnatural things to make this beautifully landscaped, uh, looking fairways and, and greens and things. Yeah, it's it's a manicured thing. It's an it's like uh, you take everything in High Park and you and you give it a haircut. Yeah, exactly. But I'm thinking, like, if, if they can do all these things, that all sounds amazing. Like, I, I'd love to see the connectivity of the ravines, and I, I'd love to. Yeah, they they especially want to re- reach out to BIPOC people, LGBTQ plus people you know, the, the people in the immediate neighborhoods who are largely equ- equity deserving communities and, and say, Hey, like this is, this is affordable. It's fun. It's a good way to get some exercise and take a walk. If they can do all of those things, that's great. I just wonder about, you know, in, in your book rebound, you, you write a lot about the value of facilities that can serve multiple purposes for different communities and different sports. You can make a field into a lot of things, but a golf course, how versatile uh, the space of a golf course is compared to, you know, a pitch, which could be a cricket pitch. It could be a soccer pitch. It could be, you know, uh, it could be a racetrack. It could be all sorts of things. It's a really good question. So, I, I, I mean, if, if this is a matter of making sure that there's value in that facility, I feel like we need to expand who takes part. And I think that's a, a big part of this equation because, I mean, golf courses are sacrosanct. They, I feel like if, if we're actually providing a quality golf experience, that, that, that's a part of a solution. It's not the solution. If kids at age eight can, you know, get out there and, you know, putt a little bit, I think that's, that's a really good start. If we can find, make the TDSB a better partner in this and, you know, accommodate more golf tournaments, which is not as much a thing in, in the TDSB, but it's a thing. Right. If we can, if we can provide a quality educational experience there, we can try to find ways to, to get around having to dig into, um, you know, a really treasured, you know, green or a fairway or anything like that. But ultimately, we have to remember that this is a very small part of the solution. 
It can't be the solution. I mean, multi-use facilities are are so incredibly important to the general health of of the sports identity of the city, and it has spillover effects into you know into quality of life, into into organizing that kind of thing. You know, multi-sport facilities can also be rec rec centers with meeting rooms that are are really important. You know, if if golf courses want to provide you know adjacent community centers and those kinds of facilities on their properties, open them up in that creative kind of way. It could be it could be an approach to take. Um, you would need some some um, good relationships with with the courses and prof- uh, from the contractors and stuff to um, you know to get creative with those kinds of usages. You know, I I I, I get it. I get that being able to, to cut away from the quality of these facilities is a concern. It, it really is. It really is. It changes. It does change the golf experience. But we can we can enhance the, the experience. But ultimately, we we have to remember. This this particular item is just a small part of the solution. We can't rely on these golf courses to give us everything that we possibly need. We need to urge the city to continue to invest as much as possible around it. If you if you want to take it away, take it away. You know, if you're going to cut nine holes from Dantonia, you might as well just cut the whole facility entirely. You know, just just open it up completely. Like if we can't manicure the facility in a way that accommodates these issues, and we don't have the tech to support it, then we should just wipe it out or leave it alone. Um, but if we have you know, land that is 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 prime for like a multi-sport facility that can accommodate for several sports at once. We should be in, investing in that as well. We should really be investing in those things. It is so important to make sure that there's an opportunity for communities to to engage. You know, regardless of the sport, but you know, an opportunity to engage is so important. All right. Well, Perry, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah. Thanks. I put down more thoughts about the golf issue over at friend of the podcast Matt Elliott's City Hall Watcher newsletter. If you like this stuff, and I mean you're listening, right? You should head over there and subscribe. And, of course, you can buy Perry's book at the Spacing Store. Finally, we've been telling you about Spacing's new Souvenirs of Toronto Sports book, and we have another sneak peek for you now. Neil Brochu supervises the city's fine art collection for Toronto History Museums and wrote a piece for the book about how LGBTQ plus people got together in the 60s and formed the Rotators Curling League. Neil, we're going to talk about curling in Toronto, and maybe we could start by just talking about how it was introduced to the city early on in, uh, I think you have 1836 thereabouts. Yeah, so curling comes to Toronto through Scottish immigrants arriving in the city and, you know, bringing a game that they were familiar with at home and finding, you know, great, you know, sheets of ice to play in Toronto when they arrived. It seems that, you know, it's one of the actually the city's earliest sports organizations as well. Uh, That's the Toronto Curling Club. Yes. And then something interesting happens in the 60s. And you you see the birth of the Rotators Curling League. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so the Rotators Curling League starts up in 1962 at the Terrace Club, which was um, a new curling club that was established as part of a renovation to the Mutual Street Arena. And it was started by a group of railway porters who all would have known each other by working on the railway. And many of them had come from rural parts of Canada and were now, you know, had settled in Toronto. 
and were really looking for a place where they could play a game that was common or familiar to them, uh, whether they're from the East Coast or from Western Canada, that reminded them of home. And what initially maybe was obvious or not obvious um, to to the membership was that many of the uh, original founders of the Rotators were ultimately what, what created Toronto's queer community. That's interesting. You you talk a bit about it in the article, and it's hard to pin down exactly. But uh, the question rises: Why curling specifically? Well, I think you know it's it's interesting because it's something that uh, as I was doing the research for the article and talking to members of the club that this uh, movement from rural to urban Canada, particularly for, you know, for queer people in Canada, is something that, you know, happened a lot in the 20th century and continues to happen today. So you have a lot of people who move from rural parts of, you know, eastern Canada or western Canada and settle in places like Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. And of course, just like the Scottish immigrants of the early 19th century, they brought with them, you know, the games and customs and things that they remembered from home. And curling is 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 really one of those really interesting sports that does have, uh, you know, a resonance with rural communities across the country. So I think it was a really interesting moment where people come we often think about people immigrating to Canada from other countries and bringing their traditions. But, you know, people also, quote, immigrate or move to Toronto from other parts of Canada and also bring those those traditions that are familiar to them from the places they're from. And so beyond just the love of sport and playing, what did this league mean for the queer community? Well, it seems, and a lot of the, the reading I was doing around the queer community, and again, people I was speaking to who were members of the Rotators, were talking about really people needing a place to meet and to socialize and you know, to find a supportive environment that wasn't a bar, that wasn't about picking up, that wasn't about you know, a, a quick hookup, but it was about trying to create community and trying to create or be involved with something that was more durable and lasting and created longer kind of bonds and friendships between people. And so the the league bounced around from, from place to place over time. I mean, 62 was a long time ago. Uh, so it went to Avonlea Curling Club, Royal Canadian Curling Club. Uh, where Where is it landed now? It's uh, at the Royals today, so it's on Broadview Avenue. So it's been there um, at least since the 1990s. I wasn't able to pin down the exact date when it moved there, but it seems like after they when after they left Avonlea, they they ended up on uh, playing on Broadview Avenue. And the club, since it's um, been involved at the Royals, really the membership has expanded quite a bit over the last say 30 years. Right. Uh, like I, I was going to ask, I mean, the last two years are, are not a, a good way to, to judge uh, with, with the pandemic, but uh, it, it is still a, a going thing. It's, it's, it's still popular. Yeah, it's still very popular. It has a lot of active members. Um, you know, one, one, a good friend of mine is, is a member mm-hmm. of the Riverdale Club. That's the, the sister club. Yes, the sister club. So in the early 1980s, a second league starts up, and uh, that's the Riverdale League. And then ultimately, uh, and they started up at the Royals. So they, that, that's where they began in the early 1980s. And then in the 1990s, the Rotators joined them. So they're sister leagues um, that have a, a slightly different membership makeup. Some people do play in both. But, uh, and certainly the, the membership is strong and, and, and actually continues to grow. And uh, from from both of these leagues, uh, you, you mentioned that we've had players go on to compete in the Canadian National Gay Curling Championship. 
Yeah. So the teams that, that compete in 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 the championship and the, the the kind of the Canadian national bond spiel are teams that are made up out of all sorts of local players. So it's not that um, either the Rotators or the Riverdales send a team. It's that the team is made up of local talent. And uh, many of the players who go to on to play in that uh, that tournament are are from these two leagues. So yeah, it's 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 still going strong. Uh, pandemic aside, uh, if people want, uh, they they can reach out and and see about joining. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. The Rotators and the Riverdale League. There's a website, uh, pretty easy to find um, mm-hmm. on a on a search, and uh, it's a fairly easy way to join. And they they accept all. It's a very inclusive league, and they accept all you know all skill levels. So people from people starting out to people who are quite expert. And it's, you know, it's a great way to get involved in the sport. Uh, it's a very sociable sport. And, I, you know, I think that the people that I know that have been involved in it and the people that I met have been involved for a long time. So it seems like once you, once you get in, you get hooked mm-hmm. and, and you, you may be there for a few decades. All right. Well, Neil, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Hey, no problem, Glenn. <laughs> And you can buy souvenirs of Toronto sports at the Spacing Store or at spacingstore.ca. Well, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your caddy, your skip, or your ski equipment store. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes, as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, or check out spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, happy municipal budget season. Cheers. Cheers.